0: This is Spacetime, Series 21, Episode 2, for broadcast on the 5th of January, 2018. Coming up on Spacetime, solving the mystery of which comes first, the supermassive black hole or the galaxy it's in. New studies claim Mars may not be as dry as it seems. And SpaceX getting ready to launch the Falcon Heavy. All that and more coming up on Spacetime.
1: Welcome to Spacetime with Stuart Gary.
0: Astronomers may be a step closer to solving one of the greatest mysteries in astrophysics. Which comes first, the galaxy or the supermassive black hole at its centre? All galaxies are thought to contain supermassive black holes in their hearts. The problem is, do galaxies form first through the accumulation of stars and molecular gas and dust clouds with the densities of the galactic centre then eventually becoming so high it forms a black hole? Or is it the other way around, with a black hole forming first, and then gradually accreting more and more stars and clouds until a galaxy is created? Adding to the mystery are observations showing that stars forming in galaxies do appear to be influenced by their central supermassive black hole. But scientists still aren't sure exactly how all that happens. This new study is an attempt to try and answer that question. The study's lead author, Professor Shelley Wright from the University of California, San Diego, thinks supermassive black holes are captivating. She says understanding why and how galaxies are affected by their supermassive black holes remains one of the outstanding puzzles of galactic formation. To try and get a better handle on all that, Wright and colleagues studied a distant quasar blasting through the interstellar medium of its galaxy. The Hearst galaxy, named 3C268, is located some 9.3 billion light-years away. Far enough to allow the team to study a supermassive black hole in the very early universe, a time when they're still actively growing by accreting large amounts of material. While black holes themselves don't emit any light, the material they consume is heated to extreme temperatures as it's crushed, stretched and ripped apart before passing a point of no return, known as the event horizon, beyond which the gravitational pull of the black hole becomes so great that nothing, not even light, can escape. The material, once it's passed beyond the event horizon, is destined to fall forever into the black hole's singularity. But the thing is, not all of this superheated material reaches the event horizon. Some of it is funneled along, we think, powerful magnetic field lines to the black hole's poles, where it's then shot out into space as powerful energy jets called quasars. Quasars are the most luminous objects in the universe, with some visible over 12 billion light-years away. That's nearly as far as the edge of the universe itself. This new research reported in the Astrophysical Journal has examined the energetics surrounding the powerful winds being generated by the bright, vigorous quasar at the heart of the 3C298 galaxy. Studies of the nearby universe have shown a remarkably close relationship between the size of a galaxy and the size of the supermassive black hole at its centre. The problem is, observations of 3C298 shows that it doesn't fall within this normal scaling relationship between nearby galaxies and the supermassive black holes that lurk at their centres. Instead, this galaxy, from the more distant and hence younger universe, is some 100 times less massive than it should be, given the size of its central supermassive black hole. The discovery implies that the supermassive black hole's mass is established well before the galaxy builds up around it. And that seems to point to the possibility that the energetics from the quasar is controlling the growth of the galaxy around it. This is Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. Now for a bit more on a story we brought you late last year. You may recall we reported that astronomers discovered 11 newly formed infant protostars within three light years of the supermassive black hole at the centre of our galaxy. And that's interesting, because black holes generate powerful gravitational tidal forces and intense ultraviolet and X-ray radiation, environments far more conducive to destroying stars rather than creating them. The findings, reported in the Astrophysical Journal letters, suggest that conditions needed for stellar formation could exist in some of the most turbulent regions of the universe, consequently highlighting new regions in the search for stellar nurseries. Now, As we mentioned earlier, most if not all galaxies are thought to host a central supermassive black hole. The one at the centre of the Milky Way is known as Sagittarius A-star. It's located some 27,000 light years away and is over 4.3 million times the mass of our Sun. At a distance of just over three light years, the gravitational tidal forces being driven by Sagittarius A star should be energetic enough to rip apart clouds of gas and dust before they can condense and form into stars. But the new stellar discoveries would tend to contradict that. They were made using ALMA, the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array Telescope. The ALMA data suggests that these protostars are only about 6,000 years old. One of the study's authors, Mark Wardle from Macquarie University, says it's the earliest phase of star formation ever found in such a hostile environment. The protostars were detected by double lobes of material which appear to be bracketing each star. These cosmic hourglass-like shapes signal the early stages of star formation. ALMA detects the bright millimetre wavelength glow of the carbon monoxide molecules in these lobes. By the way, protostars represent the embryonic stage of a star's formation, with the star continuing to gather material following its birth through the initial collapse of a dense molecular cloud of gas and dust. A portion of this infalling material, however, never makes it onto the star. Instead, it's ejected as a pair of high-velocity jets from the protostars' north and south poles. Extremely turbulent environments can disrupt the normal precession of material onto a protostar, While intense radiation from massive nearby stars, or in this case from the supermassive black hole, can blast away the parent cloud, thwarting the formation of all but the most massive stars. Vast stores of interstellar gas and dust obscure the heart of the Milky Way, where its supermassive black hole resides, hiding it from optical telescopes. But radio waves, including the millimetre and submillimetre light that Alma sees, are able to penetrate this dust, giving radio astronomers a clear picture of the dynamics and content of this hostile environment. Previous observations of the region surrounding Sagittarius A star had revealed the presence of numerous infant stars, but those findings weren't conclusive. Nevertheless, the objects, known as propylids, are a common feature in more placid star-forming regions like the Orion Nebula, so seeing them in the centre of the galaxy, so close to the supermassive black hole, was a real surprise. Mark Woodle says there are several different pathways which stars could use to form in this region.
1: There's a couple of reasons for the difficulty. One is what's called the tidal field of a black hole or any other gravitating body. So the problem there is the way you make a star is you have gas part of a dense part of a cloud where its own gravity gets to pull it together and make it shrink and eventually forms a star. But that process is impeded if you're located close to a black hole, for example, because the gravitational pull of the black hole on the cloud varies from one side of the cloud to the other. Closer to the black hole, it's stronger further from the black hole it's weaker and that tends to pull the cloud apart against the te- you know it wants to collapse and form a star but it, it can't so that's one of the issues the other issue is that the environment is very kind of crowded we've got a relatively uh quiet black hole in our galactic center at the moment compared to some of the other ones in distant galaxies, which are very, very bright. But nevertheless, there's a lot of radiation in the region from actually, funnily enough, from hot stars. There's a lot of turbulence, it's high pressure and so on. And so all these things, the gas is very much stirred. And that, you would think, would also make it difficult for gas to collect itself together, quieten down and then pull itself together under its own gravity. So it turns out we think there's two ways you can get around this problem and make stars. One way, which people have thought about already, not just recently, is if the black hole captures a large gas cloud, uh, the gas cloud doesn't immediately get swallowed, but goes into orbit and settles down, creates a disk of gas in orbit around the black hole. And that disk can be sufficiently dense that stars can form out of it. So it's a very different structure to what people usually think about, and and that seems to be a fairly efficient way of making stars, probably more high-mass stars than low-mass stars. And then the other way is we were quite surprised recently because we had some observations that show that low-mass stars are forming very close to our uh, black hole and not in this kind of disk mode but more like they form in regular clouds where you have these dense regions that pull themselves together and form a star and it wasn't clear why this could happen until we thought about the high pressure in the region so it turns out the central few light years of our galaxy are filled with diffused hot gas at high pressure and if you look at the physical conditions in the gas clouds the pressure is very high and it turns out that this pressure surrounding a dense blob of gas keeps it together and stops it getting pulled apart by the gravitational field of the black hole. And so that is what lets it
0: happen. So it's being compressed by the environment around it.
1: That's right. So if you imagine, you you can almost think of these things as little bubbles, denser bubbles of gas in a surrounding medium. And so if you make the medium higher pressure, the bubbles get squashed a bit. To the point that their own internal pressure matches the outside pressure, and if, it's a bit like if you have a balloon in the room that you blow up with some air, and then if you increase the pressure in the room, the balloon will shrink, and if you let the pressure go, it will expand. It's a bit like that with these clouds. So, so that if the pressure is high enough, it means these clouds that are just in the right state to form stars will be sufficiently compact that they won't get torn apart by the uh, gravity of the black hole.
0: Recently, we've seen this an interesting cloud going around the black hole. We were hoping for a bit of a black hole feeding fest a couple of years ago. It never happened, sadly.
1: I know, I know. There were a lot lot of uh, red faces out there, actually, I think, because there were all kinds of expectations. I mean, no one was ever going to be 100% sure, but there was a general feeling that chances are this cloud would be uh, swallowed by the black hole and on its way down would get very hot and radiate and the black hole would become very bright. But nothing like that was seen. And I think it, it was never immediately clear what whether this was just a cloud or something a bit more subtle like a wind from a central star that was mm. just in orbit around the black hole which, you know, that would prevent it be quite a different situation and that's probably the case, I think. So nothing happened and there was a lot of, you know, a lot of proposals to use big telescopes around the planet and in orbit around Earth to stare at the black hole to see if they could see any brightening in the emission from it but there was nothing spectacular seen unfortunately.
0: These 11 stars right. that are about three light years away from Sagittarius A star there's been hints of them being there before hasn't there?
1: That's right so you know it is a difficult area to observe because it's a you know it is in the middle of our galaxy and we're on the outskirts that's a long way away so things are very close together on the sky and it's a very crowded region there are stars and gas clouds and so on are really packed in very tightly there and so to actually look from this distance and untangle everything has taken a lot of work and really it's it's only because we're starting to get the the kinds of telescopes that are sensitive enough and can resolve fine enough detail that we can really start to untangle what's going on. So we have seen what would be regarded as really strong signs that stars were forming if you had seen those signs in relatively nearby gas clouds in our galaxy. So we know a lot about star formation and looking at relatively nearby gas clouds and you see the effect that the newly born stars have on the clouds. So you get very bright spots of emission called masers in radio waves that are very distinctive and you see very powerful jets of material shot out the stars uh, into the surrounding medium and interacting with it and so on. And when you look in the central clouds close to the black hole in the, the centre of the galaxy, then you do see some of these signatures there. You see these bright spots of emission. But the problem is because the region is so c- crowded, there are usually other explanations for what could be the source of energy that's creating the conditions that give you these signatures. And so that's been disappointing because you say, look, it looks like it's happening, but but scientists, being scientists, of course, they they tend to be and rightly so sceptical. So there's alternative possibilities they're not going to accept that what you're suggesting has been conclusively proved so we've actually done and others have, have published quite a few papers saying this looks like star formation is happening this looks like star formation is happening but there always have been some alternative explanations for producing what's been detected and so it hasn't really been conclusive and so that's been a little bit frustrating and and so we're very hopeful that this detection of these little by you know dual jet structures is kind of a much more tangible, difficult to argue with proof. And of course, we're going to do follow-up observations to if you look closer, that you see what we expect to see, which will be very interesting. We're hoping next year to get some observations to look more closely. Now that we know where some of these um, uh, stars are, we can get a very close look, targeted observations, and try and do high resolution imaging to try and really look down and see the jets coming off the uh, stellar system there that are underlying the structures that we've detected today.
0: And that's really where ALMA came into the picture, isn't it? Being able to detect the specific signatures in the millimetre and submillimetre wave bands.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, these are very expensive, very exciting facilities that take years to be constructed and everybody gets very excited looking forward to it. There's a huge amount of work, you know, to get these things designed and built and thinking about the science that you can do. And it really is well suited for this particular work because ALMA, is very sensitive and also, you know, it gives you high resolution. And it's also because it's working at very long wavelengths, millimeter and radio waves, those are waves that can propagate through unharmed basically by all the intervening material that lies in the galaxy between us and its center. Because if you look in the visible wavelengths, you know, with your visible eye, you really don't see anything because there are these dark dusty clouds between us and the centre of the galaxy and you just can't see what's behind them. But with radio waves and infrared you can and so ALMA is very well suited to this kind of thing. And It's an example of the kind of technology development uh, that is really pushing astronomy along because it gives us these new capabilities and we can look at things we've wondered about for a long time and finally get to do that.
0: That's Mark Wardle from Sydney's Macquarie University and this is Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. at Space Time with Stuart Gary on Instagram and on Facebook, just go to wwwfacebookcom Gary. A new study suggests that water on Mars is being absorbed by the red planet's rocks like a sponge. The new findings, reported in the journal Nature, suggest that Martian basalt rocks can hold up to 25% more water than similar basalts on Earth. The Red Planet was once a warm wet world with a thick atmosphere, however it's now become an inhospitable, freeze-dried, barren desert. What happened to the Red Planet's water is one of the long-standing unresolved questions about Mars. Mars lost most of its thick atmosphere when the planet's molten core began to cool down and solidify about three and a half billion years ago. Because Mars is just a third the size of the Earth, its molten metal core cooled down much more quickly. As the Martian core cooled, the planet's geodynamo, which is generated by the spinning molten core and in turn generates a protective planetary-wide magnetic field, also ground to a halt. Without the magnetic field acting as a shield, the solar winds from the Sun began eroding away the Martian atmosphere. As the atmosphere degassed into space, the lower air pressure prevented water from pooling into a liquid on the red planet's surface, instead sublimating directly from ice into gas. Mind you, a lot of the red planet's water remains frozen in ice caps at the Martian poles, frozen below the surface as permafrost or as vapour in the atmosphere. However, these hypotheses can't explain where all the water has gone. And that's the mystery this new study is trying to solve. The study's lead author, John Wade from Oxford University, believes a lot of that water is locked away in Martian rocks. Wade and colleagues proposed that the Martian surface reacted with the water and then absorbed it, increasing the rock's oxidation in the process. The author supplied modelling methods used to understand the composition of Earth's rocks in order to calculate how much water could be removed from the Martian surface through reactions with rock. They assessed the role that rock temperature, subsurface pressure and composition would have played, finding that basalt rocks on Mars can hold approximately 25% more water than those on Earth. Wade says while people have thought about the Martian water question for a long time, no one's ever tested the theory of the water being absorbed as a result of simple rock reactions. There have been several clues which pointed Wade and colleagues towards this hypothesis. For instance, Martian meteorites are chemically reduced compared to the surface rocks, and compositionally they look very different. One reason for this, and why Mars lost all its water therefore, could be its mineralogy. The Earth's current system of plate tectonics prevents drastic changes in surface water levels, with wet rocks efficiently dehydrating before they enter Earth's relatively dry mantle. On Mars, water reacting with freshly erupted lavas that formed its basaltic crust resulted in a sponge-like effect. The planet's water then reacted with the rocks to form a variety of water-bearing minerals. The water-rock reaction then changed the rock mineralogy and caused the Martian surface to dry out and become inhospitable to life. The Earth never experienced these changes because Mars is so much smaller than the Earth, with a different temperature profile and also a higher iron content of its silicate mantle. Now, while these are only subtle distinctions, they cause significant effects, which over time adds up. They made the surface of Mars far more prone to reaction with surface water, and therefore able to form minerals that contain water. So the Red Planet's geological chemistry naturally drags water down into the mantle, whereas on the early Earth, hydrated rocks tended to float until they dehydrate. I'm Stuart Gary. you're listening to Space Time. After more than 12 years of planning and development, SpaceX is finally getting ready to fly its new Falcon Heavy launch vehicle. The 70-meter-tall reusable rocket is based around three Falcon 9 common booster core stages, mounted side-by-side in a similar fashion to the Delta IV Heavy, from which it will take the title as the world's most powerful operational launch vehicle. All up, the Falcon Heavy will be able to lift 63.8 tonnes into low Earth orbit, 23.7 tonnes into geostationary transfer orbit, at least 18 tonnes into translunar orbit and around 16.8 tonnes for missions to Mars. To outperform the Falcon Heavy, one needs to go back to the 1960s and early 70s and the mighty 110-metre-tall Saturn V Apollo moon rocket so powerful it could carry 138 tons into low Earth orbit and a massive 48.6 tons into translunar orbit. SpaceX boss Elon Musk says the Falcon Heavy sounded easy at first. Just take two first stages and use them as strap-on boosters for a third first stage. But he now admits it all turned out to be far more difficult than expected, requiring a complete redesign of the center core stage and lots of additional hardware. In fact, SpaceX has had to heavily modify the boosters in order to take account of the different aerodynamic, acoustic and thermal stresses during launches sent to space. Both side boosters for the maiden flight of the Falcon Heavy are flight-proven, with one having previously flown on the CRS-9 Dragon mission to the International Space Station, while the other was used to launch the TICOM-8 telecommunications satellite. The Falcon Heavy's first flight will be a demonstration mission in order to validate the vehicle's flight profile and technologies. And according to Musk, he's ordered SpaceX to use an unusual payload for the mission. Instead of the usual dummy payload packed with scientific monetary equipment, Musk claims he's sending his own midnight cherry Tesla Roadster playing space oddity. He also claims the Falcon Heavy's destination is deep space on an Earth-to-Mars-Holman transfer orbit. With a heliocentric perigee of 150 million kilometres, the radius of Earth's orbit around the Sun, and a heliocentric apogee of 228 million kilometres, equating to the radius of Mars's orbit around the Sun. Now, if he's telling the truth, what it means is there will be a red two-seater electric sports car floating between the orbits of Mars and Earth, something for future missions to watch out for over the next few billion years. And I guess something for space archaeologists to be amazed at when they stumble across it in the future. Apparently, the original plan was to send the car to Mars, but international planetary protection rules prevented SpaceX from doing so, so placing it into orbit at the same distance was the next best thing. Although we've had lunar buggies on the moon during the Apollo missions, this will be the first road car to make it into space. What's still unclear at the moment is whether it'll be David Bowie's original space oddity or the cover version played by Canadian astronaut Chris Hadfield while aboard the International Space Station. Now speaking as an ex-radio disc jockey of many years, with the first anniversary of the passing of David Bowie taking place on January the 10th, surely it will be the Ziggy Stardust version that gets played. I was going to say spun, but I think the Tesla comes with an MP3 player. During the last days of 2017, SpaceX rolled out the Falcon Heavy on a newly modified TEL or Transporter Erector Launcher, capable of handling both Falcon 9 and Falcon Heavy configurations. The new rocket was then lifted into its vertical position at the Kennedy Space Center's Launch Pad 39A at the Cape Canaveral Air Force Base in Florida. That's the same historic launch pad, which, together with its sister pad 39B, was specifically built to launch the Saturn V and then later modified for the space shuttles. The Falcon Heavy, originally known as the Falcon 9 Heavy, was originally planned on to take its maiden flight from the other side of the country from Space Launch Complex 4E at the Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. But lots has changed since those original plans were made. Once erected vertically on Pad 39A, the Falcon Heavy underwent a series of launch pad clearance and compatibility surveys, as well as some in-situ vehicle and launch complex testing. It was then lowered back down onto the tell and rolled away, in order to make room for SpaceX's secretive zoom mission slated for launch on January 4. Further testing of the Falcon Heavy will include propellant loading and a static fire test of its 27 Merlin 1D engines. The Falcon Heavy is now expected to undertake its maiden flight within the next two weeks. SpaceX will also attempt to land all three first stages of the rocket, two on Cape Canaveral's landing zones, and one on the drone ship, of course I still love you, which will be positioned downrange in the North Atlantic Ocean. You're listening to Space Time, I'm Stuart Gary, and that's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Spacetime as a free twice-weekly podcast through Apple Podcast iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audioboom, from SpacetimeWithStewartGary.com or from your favourite podcast download provider. Spacetime's also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C., around the world on TuneIn Radio and as part of Virgin Australia's in-flight entertainment. If you want more Space Time, check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as loads of images, news stories, videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgarry.tumblr.com. That's all one word and in lowercase, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us on Twitter through @stuartgary, at Stuart at spacetimewithstuartgarry on Instagram, and on Facebook. Just go to www.facebook.com slash Gary. Space Time is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Space Time with Stuart Gary. This has
1: been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.